Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff. That's me, Dr. Jeff. I'm a paediatric oncologist at the Children's Hospital at Westmead here in Sydney, Australia. And this is my podcast mostly for parents of children who are being treated for cancer and leukaemia, but it's for anyone else who's interested. Anyway, today's episode is all about neuroblastoma in particular. Neuroblastoma, a particular type of tumour that's one of the more common tumours we deal with in children. So if you're not interested in neuroblastoma, you should turn off about now. But in particular, today I want to talk about MIBG again, and in particular how we can use MIBG as a treatment for neuroblastoma. So what you should do is listen to the earlier episode on neuroblastoma, and then you should listen to the episode on MIBG scans In that episode, I explained that MIBG stands for meta-iodobenzylguanidine. And MIBG is, it's a chemical that's a bit like adrenaline. And so when we label MIBG with a radioactive tracer, we can inject MIBG into the bloodstream and tumour deposits of neuroblastoma suck up the MIBG and then we can get our special radiation camera and put it over the child and look for where there might be any deposits of tumour. So when we do an MIBG scan, we're using this radioactive MIBG with a tiny, tiny, tiny dose of radiation to try to work out if the neuroblastoma has spread to other locations in the body apart from where it first started. And we're doing MIBG scans all the time in neuroblastoma. Uh, It's one of the most common tests we're doing. So, like I said, that's what you call an MIBG scan. That's a scan that's being done for what you call diagnostic purposes. It's to help us work out where the tumour is, but it's not to treat the tumour. Today I want to talk about the use of MIBG, particularly to treat neuroblastoma. And this is something that's been looked at for some years, but it's nowhere near as commonly used as MIBG scans for diagnostic purposes. Like I said, when we do an MIBG scan, we use a tiny, tiny dose of radioactive iodine that's attached to this MIBG, but that tiny dose is enough for our camera to detect, and that's all we need to give. Now, when we talk about using MIBG to treat neuroblastoma, this time what we're doing is using a much, much higher dose of MIBG with the radiation attached. And so the logic is if we give a really high dose of MIBG that's radioactive and we inject it into the bloodstream, well, it'll circulate through the body. The neuroblastoma will take up the MIBG just like it does in an MIBG scan But this time the tumour cells will be taking up a much, much higher dose of radiation. And in fact, the idea is that the dose of radiation that they suck up into themselves will be enough to kill them. So that's what it's all about, giving a much, 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 much higher dose 
of radioactive MIBG into the bloodstream and then the tumour deposits and the tumour cells take up the radiation but now it's such a high amount of radiation that it might be able to kill the neuroblastoma cells. And by the way, there's other settings in medicine where we do this in other tumour types. There's uh, thyroid cancer, for instance. When you treat people with thyroid cancer, and mostly they're adults, well, they're often treated with a radioactive iodine preparation. It's not MIBG, it's something different, but uh, they're often treated with radioactive iodine. And there's all sorts of other places in cancer treatment where we use this approach of giving something radioactive into the bloodstream and then the tumour cells take it up, and then that kills the tumour. So you can imagine, if we could get this to work, it sounds like it should be a sort of a magic bullet, right? Uh, This is something that can kill tumour cells. It's selectively taken up by the tumour and not really taken up by normal tissues very much. You'd think it could be really fantastic and kill the tumour and not have any side effects. Well, as usual in treating cancer, it never quite turns out that way. Uh, it's never the magic bullet you hope for, but nonetheless, it is a treatment technique that's uh, been studied and there's some data to support its use in certain situations and there's a lot of research still going on into the use of this high-dose MIBG to treat neuroblastoma. Now, before I go on, let me just cover a bit of sciencey sort of stuff. So serious geek alert here. This is sort of sciencey stuff just for those who are interested. Now, you've got to remember the periodic table of elements. Anyone who's studied chemistry, remember the periodic table? Well, it turns out that you have these things called isotopes. And for every type of atom, there's different isotopes depending on how many neutrons are in the nucleus of the atom right? So the most common isotope of carbon, for instance, is carbon-12. But if you put in an extra neutron into a carbon atom, then it becomes carbon-13. And if you put an extra two neutrons in, then it becomes carbon-14, right? So you've heard of that carbon-14 dating. That's how they work out how old things are, right? Carbon-14 dating. So that's what you call different isotopes of an atom, Well, with iodine, and that's the radioactive part of MIBG, there's all sorts of different isotopes of iodine. And it's not that important that you understand this, but just for interest, the usual one that's used these days for MIBG scans is one called iodine-123. So if you add up all the protons and neutrons in the nucleus of it, it comes to 123. That's the one you use for scans. But when you're using... MIBG in a high dose for treatment, then the isotope that's used is one called iodine-131. And it's to do with what sort of particles it emits and what sort of radiation and that sort of a thing. So it's I-131 for treatment doses and I-123 for scans. The next thing to know is how do we measure radiation doses? So, you know, we measure weight in kilograms and we measure volume in litres, and we measure temperature in degrees. Well, we measure radiation in things called millicuries. So you remember Marie Curie? Marie Curie, who discovered radium, and she discovered polonium, and she won the Nobel Prize with her husband, Pierre Curie, back in 1903. And then, get this, she won the Nobel Prize again, this time by herself, in 
1911. Marie Curie, very smart lady, originally from Poland, actually. And I think as well as discovering radium, she discovered another atom, and this one she called polonium, probably because she came from Poland before she ended up in France. Anyway, Millie Curies are named after Marie Curie. And so you measure radiation doses in Millie Curies per kilogram of patient body weight. So when you talk about giving this high-dose MIBG treatment to someone and you're trying to work out what dose you're going to give, you talk about how many millicuries per kilogram you're going to give. How many millicuries per kilogram? And for instance, when you talk about the highest doses of MIBG that are given to people, uh, the highest dose that's normally talked about is one of 18 millicuries per kilogram. And that's abbreviated 18 MCI per kilogram. So 18 millicuries per kilogram is a high dose. 12 millicuries per kilogram is a medium high sort of dose. And then there's lower doses, 4 millicuries per kilogram, etc. Now, if you talk to the nuclear medicine people about this, they will just confuse you totally because then they'll start talking about some other unit of radiation called becquerels or something, and it all gets very confusing. I'm glad they understand it in all its detail. But mostly we talk in millicuries per kilogram. So now let me talk about how we actually do this treatment uh, with high-dose MIBG. Normally, we'll be talking about a child whom we know to have neuroblastoma, and they'll have had an MIBG scan, you know, the diagnostic scan done with the usual I-123 to work out where the tumour is. Based on that, then a plan will be developed to use this high-dose MIBG treatment. And it's going to depend a little bit on what dose of MIBG is given as to what level of complexity surrounds this treatment. But in essence, it involves giving the Lugol's iodine again. Lugol's iodine is uh, some drops that you take by mouth from a few days before the treatment, and that's to stop the thyroid sucking up the MIBG. That's all that's for. So they'll have this Lugol's iodine for a few days, and then they can have the MIBG infused, usually through the central line, and then they might follow that with some fluids, and then that's it, really. But the great complexity arises because the child has had a high dose of MIBG and so has a high level of radioactivity in their bloodstream for a period of time. And how high a level they have and how long it persists depends on what dose of radiation is given. But it has all sorts of implications for what's going to happen in the days after this high dose MIBG is given because we have to consider radiation exposure to other people, so to the parents, to the doctors and the nurses, and we have to consider excretion of the radiation in the urine, for instance. So all of these things become very important, and we can't just give the treatment and then send the child home to get on a bus and sit next to all sorts of members of the public. No, depending on what dose of radiation we've given there may be a period of isolation that's required. And different countries seem to have some different rules about what level of residual radiation is allowed before uh, patients are allowed to go back out into the community and mix with the general public, etc. And I don't know the rules in every different country. 
But normally there is some sort of period of uh, isolation away from the general community and indeed away from the parents and the doctors and the nurses and the everyone else looking after the patient. So this becomes a bit complicated and most of the time when we're giving high-dose MIBG, we need to have specially fitted out rooms to put the patient in. So, for instance, at our hospital, we have this special room and it's got a lead-lined door and the toilet flushes to a certain special place and it's got a camera up there on the child so the parents can sit in the room next door and see the child and the child can see the parents. And there's all sorts of rules about what level of exposure the parents can have to the child during this day or two or three or four after the MIBG treatment, what level of exposure the staff can have, etc. And often there's lead line screens and so on. So you can imagine this becomes a bit complicated because, let's face it, a lot of kids don't want to be separated from their parents. A two-year-old or a three-year-old isn't necessarily that happy with just looking at mum and dad on a TV screen. No, they want them there, right with them, next to the bed. So it becomes quite complicated how to manage this. And in some situations, we need to give the child sedation so that they'll lie still and not pull out all their lines and jump up and down and run out of the room and, and so on. And in selected cases, we've even had to give the child a full anaesthetic for a few days, you know, on a ventilator like they're in an intensive care unit, just so they'll lie still until it's safe for them to come out of the room and be with their parents and staff, etc. So it's quite a complicated process and it depends on what dose of MIBG you're giving and how fast the patient clears it from their bloodstream as to how long they need to be in any sort of isolation. Now, what about the side effects of the high-dose MIBG? Well, I'd say most of the time during the infusion, it's pretty uneventful. And in the days afterwards, it's uh, pretty uneventful as far as any side effects from the MIBG are concerned. It's quite eventful because a child needs some sort of isolation and that may or may not be distressing and need special measures. But as far as getting any side effects in those first few days, we don't tend to see much. I guess the main thing to consider as far as side effects are concerned is the question of what dose of radiation ends up in the bone marrow. So you remember the bone marrow makes all of your blood cells. Well, as the MIBG circulates through the bloodstream, it can affect the bone marrow a bit like the way chemotherapy does. So it hits the bone marrow and then a week or two or three later, the blood counts drop. Now this effect might be more severe in the patients who have neuroblastoma cells in their bone marrow. So you can imagine if there's neuroblastoma cells in the bone marrow, they suck up high doses of MIBG. Well, that can damage the normal bone marrow that's surrounding the tumour cells. But even in patients who don't have neuroblastoma in the bone marrow, the higher doses of MIBG can still hit the bone marrow and cause low blood counts. So there's certain levels of dosing of MIBG that are high enough that you can't just give them to the patient without storing up some bone marrow beforehand to give back to them afterwards. So when we talk about the higher doses of MIBG, like that dose of 18 millicuries per kilogram, we normally have to have some of the patient's bone marrow stem cells frozen in a bag 
And then after we give the MIBG, then a period of time later, we give those cells back to the patient. And that's an autologous bone marrow transplant. I've done whole episodes on autologous bone marrow transplants, but it's a way of giving them some bone marrow that doesn't get damaged by the MIBG. Now, when you give a much lower dose of MIBG, well, it might affect the bone marrow or it might not. And so at the lower doses of MIBG, then we don't tend to need to have stem cells frozen and so on. We can give the MIBG and then monitor the blood counts and they might drop a bit, but it won't be too bad. So now let me talk a little bit about when we might use this high-dose MIBG technique to try to treat neuroblastoma. I think the first thing to say is that it's, it's not part of routine treatment of neuroblastoma. So it's used in selected situations and it's the subject of ongoing research to try to work out how best to use it. But most of the time when you uh, start treating someone with neuroblastoma, well, it wouldn't be the routine to give high-dose MIBG. And if you were planning to give high-dose MIBG right from the start, there's a good chance that that would be part of a research trial. So it's still being investigated to see if it's going to turn out to improve things. But there's a couple of situations where one might use a high-dose MIBG and not within a research study. So the first one to mention is in that situation where all of the treatments have failed and we're really talking about a palliative treatment. So we're talking about a situation of a child whose cancer can't be cured and eventually they're going to die from cancer and they're on palliative treatment, so treatment directed at relieving pain and suffering and so on. So that's palliative care, palliative treatment. In these situations, we can use this high-dose MIBG as a technique to try to relieve any pain that the patient's experiencing. And in this situation, it might be that we don't use the really super high doses, but we use a lower dose of high-dose MIBG, one that we can give and then hopefully not be in hospital for too long and not need to be isolated for too long and not drop the blood counts too much and not get too sick from it all. And hopefully that can relieve any pain in the bones, for instance, that might be part of the neuroblastoma. So that's what you call a palliative treatment with high-dose MIBG, and you can do it multiple times. Sometimes, if it turns out to be very effective in relieving pain, well, it might be a really good thing to keep on doing, and it might be that you can do it every few months, for instance. So that's using a lower dose of this high-dose MIBG treatment. Another situation where you might use high-dose MIBG could be in the patient who's got the high risk form of neuroblastoma and they've had all the usual chemotherapy and maybe they've had an operation or maybe they haven't but the tumor just isn't going away so for instance they might still have spots of tumor that can be detected in various places on the MIBG scan despite all of the chemotherapy and so it might be that you think hey, maybe we should give high dose MIBG here maybe we can impact on what's left of the tumour there before we go on to the usual bone marrow transplant. Or maybe we'll give high-dose MIBG and chemotherapy and then do the bone marrow transplant. So that's a selected situation and it's not necessarily part of what everyone would do in that situation, but it is something that I've seen done. And that's not so much in a palliative situation, but 
it's in a situation where you're still trying to control the disease and trying to go for a cure of the disease and just trying to get rid of some sort of residual tumour and hope that then you can proceed and uh, perhaps go on to the bone marrow transplant and immunotherapy later on. I think they'd be the main situations where one might consider high-dose MIBG outside of a clinical trial. So if you were looking at a patient with, say, a low-risk neuroblastoma or what you call intermediate-risk neuroblastoma, well, high-dose MIBG would not be part of routine treatment in that situation. They're patients where we would rely on surgery or surgery and chemotherapy, but we wouldn't normally be talking about using high-dose MIBG. So the next question is, well, what are the results with high-dose MIBG? And I guess what I'd say is that high-dose MIBG does have activity against neuroblastoma. Now, in oncology, when we say something has activity, what we mean is it makes some tumours get smaller. doesn't mean it makes all tumours get smaller, but it means that a decent number of patients have a tumour that gets smaller or stops getting bigger following high-dose MIBG. So in one of the earlier studies of high-dose MIBG, that was a phase one study where they just used high-dose MIBG alone, not with chemotherapy, you know, it was about 37% of patients had a tumour that responded, so that means it got smaller by a certain amount, and about another third of the patients had tumours that stopped getting bigger for a period of time. And that was a study in patients with neuroblastoma that had relapsed. So patients who'd had chemotherapy or whatever else and everything else had failed, and so then they were given this high-dose MIBG. So settle on about a third of patients had a response, a tumour that got smaller by a significant amount, and about a third had tumours that stopped getting bigger for a period of time. Then there was a Dutch study, and in the Dutch study, instead of treating patients with relapse of disease, they took patients with high-risk neuroblastoma, and right at the start they treated them with high-dose MIBG. Now in this situation, they found a higher number of patients had what you call a tumour response. It was like about two-thirds of patients had disease that improved significantly before they then went on to the rest of the chemotherapy and everything else. So there was a suggestion there that, well, it might be that newly diagnosed patients will respond better to high-dose MIBG than those patients who've had a relapse after all the usual chemotherapy, etc. Then there have been some studies using high-dose MIBG before doing an autologous bone marrow transplant. So you should listen to my episode on autologous bone marrow transplants, but it's a common procedure in high-risk neuroblastoma. It's a pretty standard procedure to give high-dose chemotherapy and then give the patient some of their bone marrow stem cells back. Very routine procedure. It's a big undertaking, by the way, but it's very routine. Well, there have been some studies where patients who were going to have that procedure had a dose of high-dose MIBG, and then a period of time later had the high-dose chemotherapy, like in a normal bone marrow transplant for neuroblastoma, and then they got their stem cells. So they were studies to try to work out, well, is it safe to use high-dose MIBG plus the high-dose chemotherapy in this bone marrow transplant situation? And those sorts of studies were performed in 
patients with high-risk neuroblastoma who had not responded well enough to standard chemotherapy and so were considered at extra high risk of not curing the disease. So a variety of this sort of study have been performed and they've observed that certain of these patients had uh, disease that improved with the use of the high-dose MIBG and the high-dose chemotherapy and it's gone on to be a subject for ongoing research. So the big neuroblastoma trial groups around the world are uh, still conducting research in this area, trying to establish what role is there for adding high-dose MIBG into standard treatment. And so it might be that in the future there'll be clinical trials where patients with high-risk neuroblastoma get their usual chemotherapy and surgery, and then before going to the bone marrow transplant, they'll get high-dose MIBG and high-dose chemotherapy and then have the bone marrow transplant, etc., and then whatever follows. And those sorts of trials will be done to try to work out whether high-dose MIBG does improve the chances of curing this disease. Anyway, so just let me sum up all of that one more time. So high-dose MIBG is for neuroblastoma, and it involves giving a high dose of this radioactive MIBG into the bloodstream, and then that gets taken up by tumour cells, and hopefully it kills the tumour cells. It involves a period of isolation often, and that might be quite complicated, might need a special room, special sedation, etc., at the higher doses of MIBG, uh, bone marrow stem cell support might be needed, but lower doses can be given without bone marrow stem cell support, and they might particularly be used in that palliative situation. There's plenty of data indicating that high-dose MIBG leads to an improvement or a stabilisation in some patients with neuroblastoma, but it doesn't really have an established standard role in treatment of neuroblastoma at the moment. It's the subject of clinical trials and ongoing research, and in selected patients, we do turn to high-dose MIBG to try to control the disease. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. I hope this has all made sense to you. Remember to leave me any questions at my Facebook page, right? So you go to Facebook and you look up Understanding Childhood Cancer with Dr. Jeff, and you spell Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, and you can leave comments there or questions or anything I need to clarify or any requests for special episodes, etc. But for now, hang on to that child, look after yourself, be nice to the nurses, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye now.